you, God, for uh, this blessed opportunity to gather with your saints. God, thank you that you have brought us together, one body here this morning, God, to have fellowship with you, with your son, with one another. We thank you, Father, that uh, this body, this body of Christ, this church, uh, was your glorious plan from before time began, and we thank you, God, that we're living now uh, in the blessedness of what you have done through your son. God, thank you for every saint in this room and every brother and sister at home. God, I'm grateful, Lord. We're grateful for each other. We're grateful for what you have made us to be. And we ask, God, that this morning as we open your word, Father, that you would instruct us, that you would challenge us, God, to see you as you are and to see ourselves as we are, to see ourselves in light of our infinite and, and holy creator. And so we ask for your help, Father, this morning by your spirit. Strengthen us to hear your word, God, and to receive it with joy and give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So also, it could not be a more perfect day to talk about unity because we've got folks in the room from abroad. We've got folks from Mexico, folks from England. We've got folks that I haven't seen in a little while. So, you know, the Lord just knows what he's doing in this providence, does he not? So perfect timing, unity. I, I love, I, I tend to find myself talking about this naturally around this time of year. I don't know why. It's one of my favorite subjects uh, to teach on, and it is just such a wonderful thing. And I was listening to a podcast earlier this week. I don't know what it was, don't know what they were talking about, but basically there was, <laughs> sorry, I'm just being honest with you guys. I listen to a lot of them, so sometimes I don't remember every detail, but um, one, of the, one of the speakers was kind of giving a call to the, the Bible teacher, to the pastor, to the preacher, and challenging the preacher with the question or the, or the, the concept, you know, if you're going to preach a sermon or if you're listening to a sermon, did Jesus have to die in order for the content of that sermon to be true? Did Jesus have to die in order for the content of that sermon to be relevant? That's how we know that we're listening specifically to a Christian sermon, to a message from the Bible that Jesus said is all about him. If we're preaching something that, that could be totally true for everyone in this room, if Christ is not crucified and risen, then we're not preaching the word of God, amen? In order for these things to be not only true, but to be relevant to us, they have to be founded and grounded on the fact that Jesus has completed his work. And so that's kind of our, our litmus test here for uh, what we're doing, what we're attempting to do. And the thing I love about the word of God is that it does that for us. So long as we stick to the scriptures, we don't have to worry about laying a foundation of Christ crucified in order to understand these instructions that we're getting from the apostle because he's a man who knows that the work of Christ is everything in order for us to obey God's instructions. And so today, we're going to finish up our little series here, the first three verses of Ephesians 4, been calling it Walk Worthy, Living in Light of Christ's Work. And we find, again, half of the book of Ephesians is dedicated to telling us about what God has done, and then half is dedicated to instructing us in light of what God has done. So let's read the first three verses together of Ephesians 4. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness. That was two weeks ago. With patience, bearing with one another in love last week. And finally today, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the last couple weeks have brought us to this last verse here in Ephesians 4, the beginning, verse 3. Paul is continuing to urge his readers to walk in a worthy manner, to walk, to live in light of Christ's work, in light of the first half of his letter. And he is letting us know because of everything that God has done in the world, everything God has done in his church, from his decision before time even began to choose a people to be the object of his love and blessing, you guys, uh, to his present work in us now by the power of his spirit, because of how unbelievably good and gracious God has been to us. Paul is urging his readers, he's imploring them, he's begging them to live lives that reflect what has happened to them, to live lives that reflect their union with the Son of God, to live in a way that's consistent with having received every good thing from God, right? That was one of the big portions of our first week on humility. Everything that we have, we've received, right? What have we earned for ourselves? Eternal punishment. That's pretty much it. And outside of Christ, we would only compound that judgment, but we have received all good things from God. Every spiritual blessing has been gifted to us in Christ. And so Paul is answering the question here, beginning in chapter 4, how then should we live, right? In light of all this that God has done, how then should we live? And in our short little passage here, it's kind of the, the turning point of the letter, right, from doctrine to instruction. He briefly summarizes here in our little series some of the essentials of the Christian life. A few things, just a handful of things that we must make top priority if we are going to walk together in a way that's pleasing to our Savior and to our God. A few little things, not complicated not long-winded. This is, this is Christianity 101. But unfortunately, Christianity 101 is some of the most difficult things to possibly practice in our lives. Humility, patience, bearing with one another, maintaining unity. God has not called us to complicated things, but he has called us to difficult things, things that are impossible for us to do if not for the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So we've covered... Humility, right? We've covered gentleness. We've covered patience. And we have been sufficiently uh, brought low by all of these topics so far. And today we're going to continue on with the result that Paul has been aiming for, and that is unity. Unity. Ephesians 4.3. Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or as the English Standard Version reads, eager to maintain the unity. How many people are looking at New King James in front of you? All right, a handful of y'all Calvary folk. Um, not my favorite translation for this particular verse. It says endeavoring. I don't know how many of you guys endeavor often. I don't think I've ever voluntarily used that word. Um, so, you know, take that for what you will. Um, you know, nothing wrong with New King James. It just, I don't, I'm not a big endeavorer. 
Uh, I think, the, <laughs> I think the, the NAS captures it well. He says, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit. Being diligent. So let's take a look at this first phrase in order to kind of better understand our goal, where we're going. It begins with the call to diligence. Now notice what Paul is saying here. Be diligent, a.k.a. make every effort, a.k.a. work at this, right? This is not something we can be passive in. This is something we have to be diligent in. He says to keep this unity, to maintain this unity, to guard it, to watch over it. Meaning this, the unity that he's referring to is not something that we can just create or muster up in ourselves. It's not something that man has brought about. It's something that already exists. He's saying, guard this unity, maintain this unity, protect this unity. It is the unity, he says, of the Spirit. You guys with me? It's the unity of the Spirit. So just as we individuals make up one body in Christ, we talked about that a lot last week, there is one Spirit that lives, right, in each of us and in all of us, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, God in us, right? We sing Emmanuel, God with us. Well, <laughs> in the new covenant, God lives in us, in us. So because we have been born again, we share in the unity of the same Spirit. God, the Spirit that gives spiritual life and lives within us, that is the nature of our unity. It's not unity around our preferences or our you know personal agendas and desires it's a spiritual unity it is that the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead lives in you the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead lives in me and the same spirit that has risen us all from the dead so to speak is living in all of us collectively and paul tells us that whoever has the spirit of christ what belongs to christ right so we all share in the same spirit. And again, unity is such a massive topic. We could go cover to cover, and we could, we could do this all year. But I hope you guys have noticed that I've not been teaching topicals on all of these topics. We're just taking straight out of the book of Ephesians, just the first three chapters. We're, we're watching how Paul is instructing in light of what he's already written. If we were to do topicals on unity, we could go through 2023 and just do that every week. But we're going to look specifically at the first three chapters of Ephesians and how Paul sets up the call to unity. You guys with me? All right. So, brothers and sisters, we must work hard. We must be diligent. We must make every effort to keep this unity that has been created in us because, number one, for you note-taking folk, we have all things in common. We have all things in common. All things that matter, at least. We have all things in common. Particularly, like I said, we share, we all share in one spirit. We have all things in common. You know, there is, ultimately, at the end of the day, there's only one most basic, fundamental difference between one person and another. If everything else about you is removed, if we take our eraser and erase who you are or who you think you are, everything that you think makes you who you are, what sports teams you like, again, whether or not you think pineapple belongs on pizza, some people are very passionate about that, where you lean politically, where you live, what your job is, who's in your family, 
underneath all of that, if we, if we peel all of that off, right, like an onion that has layers, we, we take all that off and we get to the center of the onion, there is one thing at the deepest level that makes you who you are, that makes you what you are. To put it very, very plainly, you are either dead or alive. You're either dead or you're alive. You're either dead in your sin or you are alive in Christ. That's the one thing that really defines you as a human being. That's the thing that defines us as a church. It's not that we do this or that or we like this or that or we whatever. There's a million things that we could define ourselves as. But generally speaking, the thing that we are is a people that have been made alive. We are alive in Christ. Either you have the Spirit of God living inside of you or you are spiritually dead and separated from him, right? Above all else, beneath all else, whichever way you want to say it, they both mean the same thing. Uh, this, is, this is who we are. We're either child of God or child of Adam, right? Child of the Most High or child of the devil. The most extreme difference between one person and another is really not personality or you know, hair color or height or, or even nationality. It's the state of being dead or alive, right? You have more in common with any living person anywhere on the globe than you do with any lifeless body. I know that's a really, probably a terrible illustration, but that makes sense, right? You have way more in common with any living, breathing person than you do with anyone who's been buried in the ground. They're not breathing, eating, walking, heartbeat, brain is shut off. They're, they're literally a, you know, a corpse. I know, sorry guys, this, <laughs> that's not really where I want to go with this, but I'm, I'm trying to make the, the point here of how vast a difference there is between a living person and a dead person. Even the person that you have, you think you have nothing in common with in, in the entire world, their heart's beating, their lungs are breathing air, their synapses are firing in their brains. You have a lot more in common than you think. You both need water to survive, right? We have a lot in common with living people. Not much in common with a dead body. Really nothing. We, we maybe share the same form depending on how long that body has been buried, right? So, th Sorry. I'm so sorry, you guys. So thinking in the exact same way, come, come back with me. The qualities of a living person versus a dead person Keep that in mind. This is the kind of unity that exists within the body of Christ. You have more in common with any regenerate person anywhere on planet Earth, any person that is spiritually alive in Christ. You have more in common with that person than you do with your own family members that reject him. That's how closely related and unified the body of Christ is. More than your own brother, your sister, your mother, your father, you have more in common with the body of Christ than you do with your own blood relatives. Because there is a, a blood that unites us on a deeper level, right? The blood that we were born with is really of no significance when it comes to the kingdom of God. You could walk into any church anywhere on planet Earth that loves the Lord Jesus, and this could be true, right? We've got folks here from other countries. They walk into this building, and we're, we're one family, right? 
Anybody anywhere on earth, any Christian should be able to walk through these doors, as long as they you know, speak English or later in the afternoon if they speak Spanish, they should be able to have fellowship with us. And even if they don't speak our language, they should be able to have fellowship with us based on our relation to Christ. The difference between a spiritually dead person and a spiritually alive person, as different as death and life, as different as life or as light and darkness. These are, these are categories that the Bible uses to describe how vast the difference is and how united we are, the people that have been born of God, His church, the body of Christ. We share in things that are infinitely more. I'm just going to use the word more. We share things that are more. They're more unique. They're more valuable. They are more lasting than anything else of this world. The things, again, that we identify ourselves with, party preference, field of work, your, you know, educated stance on global warming, right? Nobody cares. Even your blood relation to your own family, all of these things that we identify ourselves with, they pale in comparison to the ways in which Christ has united us spiritually. All those things, you know, great, awesome, rock and roll, but that's not ultimately what makes us who we are. The question that we've been asking ourselves these past weeks is, what? Does anyone remember? Hmm? Three words, starts with who? No. Who am I? Who am I, right? In the, in the grand scheme of God's glorious eternal plan, you know, who am I that he would save me? In the, in the grand scheme of God's eternal glorious plan, who am I that I should dictate how things are going to go and I should be impatient with how things go in my life and what I want people to do and I, what I want God to do. Who am I? Well, above all other things, we are Christ's church. Amen? Amen? Who am I? I'm his. We are his body. First and foremost, that is who we are. It is spiritual things. Spiritual things are the things in which we find true identity, and spiritual things are the things in which we find unity. Remember that. The unity that God has made is a spiritual unity. It goes beyond the flesh. The things that we must be diligent to remember. Ephesians 4, verse 4. Read with me if you would. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These are the things that we have in common. And my friends, you guys know this, but I have to remind you anyway, Satan will put every reason possible in front of us to drive us apart. There are probably two or three going on in your mind right now. The person next to you is crumpling their papers or whatever, you know. I mean, the, the reasons are never going to end for us to be divided. Satan wants to create division in the church. He wants to stir up bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and isolation and fractures. Any way he can get it, he will take it. Even if it's not you outright in rebellion against your brothers and sisters, even if it's just getting you alone out there somewhere where you're isolated from the rest of the body, he will do it. And he is never going to give up this game. He's called our adversary for a reason he opposes god he opposes the people of god it is the purpose of his existence to oppose 
God's people. And so his game is division. His game is division. To divide husband and wife, right? To divide man and God. Division, division, division. The devil loves division. That's your little acronym or what is it? Alliteration, right? Alliteration's awesome. You got the Ds. The devil devises division. There you go. On the spot. The devil loves division. He wants to separate. He wants to separate us from God. He wants to separate fathers from their families. He wants to separate children from their parents. All of that. All the division that we see in the world and in the body is the devil's work, and we must guard our hearts and our minds against it. We have to be prepared for this. We have to know that that's what he is doing. We are one body. I don't know how many times Paul makes that clear in the first three chapters here. One body, sons and daughters of the living God. We share in one spirit. Again, the same power that rose Jesus and made him alive, made you alive, and made me alive. One hope, the free gift of salvation, eternal life given to all of us. One hope, one Lord, the King of all kings, the Lord Jesus. We all belong to him. One faith, we share one worldview, one teaching informed by God's word. We believe the same things about the basic questions of existence, right? Who created us? What for? What he requires of us? Where we're going? We share all these things in common. One baptism. We've all been washed of our sins by the same blood shed on the same cross. Washed in the same spirit. One God and Father. My Father is your Father is our Father. We will spend eternity together with each other and with him because the Spirit has given us life. He set us apart for God. We're a holy people. So everything, namely those things, everything that truly matters at the end of the day in eternity, we all have in common because we are alive in Christ. So how then will we divide his body over lesser things? When we share in this unity that the Spirit of God has given us, how then can we divide over our opinions, over our personal agendas, over our political agendas, or even social agendas, or whatever? Which candidate we voted for? That one just kills me. It kills me. Oh, you, you guys are the, the outsiders because you all voted for so-and-so. You're not really Christian. That's not what Christians do. We cannot do this kind of stuff, guys. Which candidate we voted for? Our views on economics. You would not believe how much division exists over issues like this within God's church. Capitalism is God's way. It says so right here. Just kidding. Right? It's just, guys, there is no perfect system and there never will be on planet Earth until Jesus returns. We're all doing our best to work this thing out, and it's all good. We should participate in these areas of discussion, and, and yeah, absolutely. We should love our neighbor through the socioeconomic systems that we endorse. But guys, socialism is not evil in the sense that the Bible tells us it's evil, okay? We can't say, if you're a Christian, you cannot be a socialist because that, that's just wrong. Guys, we got to get past this kind of thinking, Every system is flawed because men run it, right? Okay, good. We're on the same page here. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on and on for us to divide over things that are less than. 
social issues, social programs? What should we do with the homeless? Well, you got, you know, folks over here think, well, we should just, you know, build a bunch of structures for them to live in and they can live there for free. And then you got people that say, no, they need to work. That's all fine. Discuss all that stuff. Work it out. It's not a spiritual thing that unites us. It's not that big of an issue. Or even biblical disagreements. The rapture, the millennial kingdom, uh, election, Adam's belly button, for goodness sakes, right? There, I, you guys know this. There have been church splits over the existence of a belly button on our first parents. This is the, the craziness of human pride, right? We just have to be right. And anybody who disagrees... You, you must not even be saved, right? It's like, if you were a Christian, you would think the way I think. Humble yourselves, guys. Bear with one another in love, right? This, is, this all works together. It all starts with humility. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. You don't have a perfect system. I don't have a perfect system. No perfect system exists. We're working together with patience, humility, gentleness, because we have these things in common. Is it great to have a place where you stand on all these issues? Yeah, of course, right? Inform yourself, form an opinion, even stand up for it if you will, but those things do not ultimately make you who you are. Don't forget that. Jesus has made you who you are, amen? Jesus has made you who you are. By the grace of God, I am what I am, right? I'm his child. By the grace of God, you are what you are. We are all recipients of his grace, and that is how we need to see each other. Recipients of his grace, unified by the spirit that dwells in us and among us, not as the world sees according to the flesh, right? We love to judge people with our eyes. What does God instruct us to do? Don't look to the outside to make your assessment of people, right? But we still do it. We still do it. We do this by nature. We need to be able to see, not according to the flesh, Democrat, conservative, wealthy, poor, whatever. Discuss those things as we will, but when judgment day comes, those things are not able to save. God is not going to call to you and say, did you sign up for the right candidate? Because if not, you're not coming into my kingdom, right? What have you done with my son? That's all that's going to matter, right? We need to see this, guys. Not always all the things that we differ on. The, the, I've noticed this so much, and I do this too, but we love to identify ourselves by the things that we're not. I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm definitely not that. I'm definitely not that either. I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not that. What are you? That's kind of the question that at the end of the day here. What are you then, right? We always say, well, I'm not that, or I'm not like that guy, or I'm not like those people. What are you? What do we have in common? Because Lord knows there is a, a list as long as the day is long of the things we differ on, right? In this room, you could put one question up on the screen of preference, and we would probably have 40 different answers. We differ on so many things. If that's what we want to put our focus on, then we're already headed in the wrong direction. What is it that we have in common that makes us one people? We need to be able to look at each person in this room, God willing, and say, there is a sister made alive by the Spirit of God. There's a brother made alive by the Spirit of God. 
We're all on a journey of sanctification, maturity. You know, we, we all are on different levels along this road. But guess what, guys? We're all helpless, right? Helpless, desperate for a Savior. This takes humility. It takes patience. We may differ on many other things, but if we have these things in common, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, then we are truly united in that. Amen? We're united in something much deeper and much more powerful than the debates of this world. We trust in the same Savior. We call upon the same name. It's the same Spirit that gives us life. Ephesians 2.18, we have access to the Father by the same Spirit. The only reason I can go to God is the same reason that you can go to God, right? We all need the same channel of access to the Father, and so we have to be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit. Not easily done, but it must be done if we are going to walk worthy, if we're going to walk in light of what Christ has done for us. The salvation that is common to all Christians, right? We share a common condemnation and we share a common salvation. One people. That's number one. We have all things in common, at least all things that matter. Did we go extra long today? Oh man, sorry guys. I don't have a timer going, so you're going to have to just bear with me here. Number two will be shorter, and then number three will be twice as long. So number two, <laughs> number two, uh, we must make every effort to keep this spiritual unity because this is God's design. This is his blueprint for his church is unity. God's desire. Paul speaks at length in his letter about what he calls the mystery. Now, let's not get confused about what mystery means. It's not something that we can't figure out. It's just something that has now been revealed, okay? So it's no longer a mystery. It was a mystery. Now we know. The mystery now revealed through the apostles and prophets that the Gentiles, where's Russ? Is he here? There's our, our Jew. Is anyone else in here a Jew? All right, we have one. So Russ, you're going to represent the Jews for us this morning. I'm so glad you're here. So the mystery was that the Gentiles, everyone sitting in the front of the room, uh, you and me, were part of God's plan from the, from the get-go, Right? And not just in a side dish kind of way. We're not the stuffing. That we were part of the turkey dinner from the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, that we would stand before him with the same access as Russ back there, whose people were entrusted with the, with the oracles of God, right? We all have access to the Father by one spirit. We were part of God's plan from the beginning, that in Christ there would be no difference between us, right? All peoples would call upon the same Savior, we would all have united access to God through his son as the good news of Christ goes out to the whole world, right? I've, I have not forgotten Andrew Arcilla's evangelism sermon that he preached here a little while back. I just, I, the one thing that stuck to me, I can't get over it, that Jesus came for every nation, every language. I love the way that he camped on that. Not just a majority of people, but all people, all peoples. Too small a thing to be a savior to the Jews only, right? The whole world. No, God's promise was that the savior would be a blessing to the whole world, and so he is. And in these last times, Paul says, in the fullness of times, God planned to bring all things together to unite, uh -huh, 
All things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God's ultimate plan was to bring the entire creation under the lordship of his son. That Jesus would be the center of all things. As he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, all things under subjection under his feet, head over all things. God's plan was to take people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that were lost and hopeless from every corner of the earth and unite them under his son, the king. Chapter 2, verse 21. You guys remember last week we talked about patience. So to this day, he is building his church, right? That is the reason why since last week, he still hasn't come back, right? We were expecting him. He still hasn't come because he is still doing something on this earth. He is still building his church. Chapter 2, verse 21 which Paul says is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom we are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So through his Son, through the work of Christ, God has made his dwelling place among us and in us. That by itself should just crack our our brains open that God would dwell among people. And as Jesus is preached and proclaimed everywhere on the earth and sinners continue to come to him for salvation, God is building a temple for himself. Everywhere that the name of Jesus is preached and his people draw near to him and his word and his spirit and his body, God is building his temple. He's building his place of worship. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen? cool we are a building for the living god not made of stone but made up of living people all kinds of people from every walk of life and every language united in christ unity was his plan from the beginning from before time that there would be one people one body one lord and since jesus has made us to be one body Jew and Gentile and every other category under the sun, we cannot divide up what he has joined together. The Spirit has brought unity. He is the one that moves in the hearts of dead people, right? Calling him into this family, this household of God. He is the one that unites sinners to Christ, joining them together. He is building us together into God's household his sons and daughters. He is building us together into God's temple. And so we have no right to divide what he has joined. Unity in the body is God's plan and God's desire. And uniting is one of the chief ministries of the Spirit in this world. Satan does what? Divides. The Spirit is in the business of doing what? unifying unifying sinners to jesus unifying saint to saint unifying man with god by living inside of us so when we divide over our petty disagreements we are opposing the work of the holy spirit 
We are taking Satan's hand and going, let's do this thing together, right? We are opposing the mission of the Holy Spirit in the world. We're opposing the will of God. We are opposing the growth of the very same body that we are a part of when we divide. So in humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, we must guard unity. We share all things together. We were made for the unity that we now experience. And then finally, most importantly of all, we must keep unity because, number three, Jesus gave his life for it. Jesus gave his life for it. Let me read the call for you again, Ephesians 4, 3. Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does in the bond of peace mean? Well, you guys know what a bond is, right? You heard of Bondo? It's a product. It does that, right? Like Velcro. Sticky stuff. A bond is something that binds things together, right? It holds things together. The same word used for bond here is, is translated ligament in Colossians chapter 2. You guys know what a ligament does? Does anybody know scientifically? It's a connective tissue. A ligament is a fibrous connective tissue that attaches bone to bone and usually serves to hold structures together and keep them stable. Great definition. We're going to fix that definition later and make it all spiritual. But Paul is telling us that peace is the thing that holds this unity together. This unity that God has created by his spirit. Peace is the sticky stuff that holds the unity together. And again, humility, guys, just like we didn't make this unity in the first place, we're guarding it, right? We're protecting it. It's the Spirit's unity. We're just maintaining it. Peace as well. This peace is not peace that we created. We are not people that create peace. We try to keep peace that God has made, right? Human beings don't do well with peacekeeping. In case you haven't ever watched the news in your life, it's not one of our great skills. We have a planet that is not exactly at peace, is it? It's his peace. It is the peace of Jesus. It is the peace that God has made with us through the work of Christ. This is the peace that binds us together. And this is all kind of summarized in chapter 2. If you guys want to turn there with me. Uh, beginning in verse 13, we're going to read through verse 18. This is the peace that Paul is referring to. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were previously far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, Russ and the rest of the church, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two one new person, in this way establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace 
to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now I get to preach Christ. He himself is our peace. That's a beautiful statement, isn't it? He is our peace. Jesus became our peace shockingly through the violence of the cross. God is always working in ways that we would never anticipate. We have peace through bloodshed. We have peace through violence. Those who were far from him, he brought near by shedding his own blood. See, this, he, he, he came to bring peace. He came to bring peace between Jew and Gentile, and he came to bring peace between man and God, where previously there was hostility, we're told. Hostility between these groups because God's law requires sinless perfection. Sinless perfection. Now, I know we're familiar with that term, but I think we take it for granted a lot, guys, because we think that after we get saved, we're pretty much walking mostly in sinless perfection, but we stumble, you know, here and there, but we're doing pretty well. We're not. God's law makes this very clear, perfect obedience, not only not sinning, but perfectly obeying God's law. There's a difference. If we had never sinned, we would still not be able to be in his presence because he also requires perfect obedience to his law. It's not just not doing bad. It's doing every good thing that God requires for righteousness. Perfect and complete love, not only for him, but for neighbor as well. Perfect love for the father and for neighbor. That's what's required. Something our ancestor Adam failed to do. Satan came in there and <laughs> divided him and his wife, and then you got the first blame shifting, right? It was the woman, right? The vision from the get-go. It was her fault. She made me eat it, whatever. She gave it to me. It was the whatever. Everyone wants to blame someone else. The bottom line is Adam failed to do this, and it's something each and every one of us has miserably failed to do, and we are miserably failing at right now in this moment. And when we look into God's law, we are confronted with the reality of this hostility. When we read his commandments, we are crushed by them. We are crushed by them. We are destroyed and undone and condemned by what God requires of us. We fall so short in light of his perfection, in light of his all-consuming holiness, there is an impossibly vast ocean of separation between us. Paul says there's a barrier, there's a dividing wall, a distance that no one could cross, too vast, a hostility that no one could repair except one. One who could unite that which was separated by sin's consequence. The one who could span the greatest distance between two things, between fallen man and between perfect creator. There is only one who took on both God and man in one body. There was only one who could unite that which was separated, only one who is our peace. He is named Christ Jesus, 
the righteous, the righteous. He is our righteousness, not just for salvation, but right now in this moment, our only hope of righteousness is in him. We do not measure up, but Jesus is the one who broke down that barrier, that impossible barrier between us and God. He is the one who abolished the hostility between Jew and Gentile. I know you guys are very hostile toward Jews and them toward you, but praise God, he has made peace between the two groups, and he has made peace between God and man by fulfilling the requirements of God's perfect law, by succeeding where Adam failed, right? Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. Adam was our representative, and he screwed up in every single way possible. But Jesus has come and succeeded in every single way that Adam failed. Reconciling both groups, Jews and non-Jews alike, ending the war between us and God, and establishing peace through the cross. Through the cross. Because of Jesus' obedience, peace has come to us. Because he lived in perfect obedience and did all that God requires for righteousness, for goodness. Because he also died in the place of God's hostile enemies. The death and the anger that God had built up against mankind, he poured out on his son for those who would trust in him. That distance, that distance, we, tr- we think of distance, right? We, we've seen a lot of things through telescopes. Uh, we've sent out probes into deep space to take pictures of the universe, right? And they can see out light years of distance out into the universe, different galaxies and black holes and nebulas and all that stuff. And we think, wow, that's really far away. Nothing is farther than the distance between infinite God and mortal fallen man. That is the greatest distance between two things, the almighty and the fallen. Jesus has bridged that gap. He has crossed that distance between God and man, and he has erased the distance. He has made the two one, the bond. Jesus is the bond. He bridged the most massive, infinite gap imaginable between two things by shedding his blood for us perfect creator, holy creator, and sinful man. He's made access to the Father possible. He stood in our place in life and in death. He did what we could not do. He died the death that we deserve to restore unity between God and man. This is what we are made for, to have unity with God and to have unity with one another, to walk in harmony with our creator and with our brother and with our sister. This is literally what he made us for, to have fellowship with him, to worship him and enjoy him forever. That has now been made possible, and that is good news. Amen? Not old news, not boring news, not repetitive news. It's good news. Right now it's good news because we, in our flesh and in our sin, we often feel distant from him, don't we? When we fall, when we stumble, when we do the same things over and over in this battle, we feel that separation. But Jesus has made 
peace. He has made reconciliation. He has done it all. And because of that, we have this bond. We have the thing that holds us together. The peace that Jesus purchased with his own life is the bond. It's the connective tissue that now holds us together, his body. We are at peace with God at Christ's expense. How much more then should we be at peace with each other? Those who have also been reconciled through him, how much more should we be at peace with each other? How much more should we be one if he has made us one? A ligament, a ligament. I told you guys, a ligament is a fibrous connective tissue that attaches bone to bone and usually serves to hold structures together and keep them stable. I'm going to spiritualize this for you guys. The peace of Christ is the bond that attaches man to God and Christians to the body of Christ and serves to hold the body together and keep it stable. If you guys want that emailed to you, just email me, dan at calvarynapa.org. Um, that, is, that is the bond, the bond of peace that Paul is talking about. Peace with God is the thing that holds us together. It's the thing that we desperately need above all other things. And because we have all found this peace in Christ, we can have peace with one another. When we're tempted to divide over lesser things, we need our attention called back to this, that Christ died for his enemies. He made peace. He took the weight upon himself. He initiated this salvation. He accomplished this salvation. He rose from the grave. He seeks after us when we are running from him. He does it all in love. And what does he desire of us? That we would be one. That we would be united in our love and our adoration of him and walking in love for each other as he has loved us. Humbly, patiently, bearing with one another. Jesus' prayer to the Father before going to the cross was that we would all be one just as he and the Father are one. He says, as they are in me and I in you, so that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Because Jesus went to such great lengths to make peace, to secure unity, he gave his life that we would be one, one people at perfect peace with God. The Son of God died to accomplish peace. Because he did that, because he laid his life down for the sake of this peace, we too must lay our lives down for the sake of unity in his body. Because he laid his life down for his bride, his church, we too must lay our lives down for it. Because he so greatly desired our unity, we must do the same. we got to be diligent, guys, not passive, not get just wiped out by the first thing that comes through here. We have to be diligent. We have to fight to preserve unity. We have to know how precious unity is to our Savior and how vital it is to us, right? One body, one body. And this is where kind of this, this whole series comes together, these three verses of Ephesians 4, because Jesus has done, we must do, right? It's that simple. 
Because Jesus humbled himself, we must walk in humility. Because Jesus showed us such great patience, we must walk patiently with each other. Because Jesus has united us to himself and to each other, we must be diligent to guard that unity. Because Jesus has made peace, we must make peace. That is living in light of Christ's work. Living worthy of the calling with which we have been called. The call to receive all the blessings and benefits of God through faith in His Son. What He has done on our behalf. Paul's prayer in chapter 3 was that his readers would be able, he says, with all the saints, for every believer in all the world, that we would be able, that we would be in the united pursuit of comprehending the unfathomable love of Jesus. That's what unites us. It is that love that compels us to live lives worthy of His calling. So, my friends, refresh yourselves this morning in His love for you and for His body. Refresh yourselves in His peace, His rest, His salvation. Are you guys resting? A half-hearted maybe. Are you resting in Jesus? Have these realities taken root in your mind that the strife is over. The hostility with God is dead. The work is done. He is our peace. He is our righteousness. The wall is broken down. We have confident access to God because of Him. If you can rest in nothing else, rest in that. You have peace with God. Remember that you are united to Him. You and God have been united together. He lives inside of you, and you are united to the rest of the body and Him to the rest of the body. And remember to see the other members of the body in this way as a dwelling place for His Spirit, right? Not everything that we have in difference, but everything that we have in common. A dwelling place for His Spirit, His beloved as you are, and as members to be loved as we walk together with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right? We made it through together. Thank you, guys. Thank you for receiving the word. I have to now relinquish the pulpit back to Pastor Rob, but... This won't be the last time ever that we're together, so I rejoice in that. I rejoice in his teaching. Uh, but thank you guys. It's been a blessing to spend three weeks on three verses. This is what you guys would get if I was the, the main teaching pastor here. We would take 10 years probably to get through the book of Ephesians, but, um, you know, such is life. So let's pray together and ask that God would help us with these things. Father, thank you for the great calling that you've called us with. Thank you that you have called us with a high calling, God, and that our place of blessed privilege comes with uh, great responsibility, Lord. You've made us members of one household, and so we enjoy the privileges of being children in your house, God. Uh, but we also see that you've called us to behave as children of God as imitators of God, as beloved children. Let us follow, Lord, in what you have done. 
Remind us this morning, Father, of the great work that Christ has done in the world, in our church, in this church, and in our own lives, God, and may that transform the way that we see each other. Father, this whole text is about how we ought to live in the body, God, and so we see that this unity, this oneness is something that is instrumental to your plan in the world and in eternity, and I pray, God, that you would help us to see ourselves in light of this, to see ourselves in light of the bigger picture, in light of the work of Christ, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for giving your son that he shed his blood to make peace and to reconcile us to you. We thank you that we have now access to you at all places and at all times, not because of our own goodness, but because of what he has done. Please, Father, strengthen the bond of this body, God, as we live together in the peace of Christ that you've made. And help us, Father, to humble ourselves, to be people of gentleness, to be people of patience, to bear with one another, God, and to fight to preserve this unity that you've made. I pray your blessing on everyone in this room, Father, and I pray that if anyone in here has not received this peace, God, that they would call out in the name of your Son here and now, Lord, to know that your hand is outstretched with the offer of forgiveness and peace, that the work has been done in your Son, that all that you ask of us, God, is to turn from ourselves and our sin and to look upon your Son, to put our trust in him, God. I pray that you would work that in the hearts of someone here today, Lord, for your glory and for their good. And we praise you, Father, that you've done that for so many of us here in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.